And I was reflecting as I um, began to think about the topic for for this evening uh, about what are some of the most important dharma principles or principles of spiritual life that both I found and would want to communicate to others. And certainly one of them has to do with compassion and the great heart of loving kindness that is there in us um, to be remembered and awakened. Um, And another, which is more the theme for this evening, is um, to communicate that which um, ennobles and empowers uh, and um, respects your own wisdom so that it's not somebody else who knows the answer. Because we live in a culture um, that, although in a certain way, prides itself on independence and the kind of, you know, Wild West cowboy kind of archetype, in fact, there's an awful lot in our, in our culture which is quite beholden to authority in, in different ways, and we all kind of know forms that that happens. Um, and that can easily be translated over into spiritual life. Um, there, there's a famous teaching to start with here that happened um, in the time of the Buddha, as the story is told in India, when there were many, many different spiritual teachers coming through um, certain areas of the around Benares and then the central India, all with different points of view about how one should live, how one should practice, what one should do. Um, not all that different than living in the Bay Area, you know, where we have the Lama of the month and the Swami of the week, you know, and, and Lamas and Mamas and Swamis in every village, really. There's Mill Valley Lama and Fairfax Lama and, you know, Spirit Rock, this and so. And even if you just look at the Spirit Rock schedule, it's full of all these different teachers and, well, should I do engaged Buddhism and serve the world or should I do a long contemplative retreat or how about loving kindness or, you know, maybe Buddhism in nature and all these and so forth. So when the Buddha came to this particular town and began to teach, the people were quite confused. They said, we've had a succession of teachers, all who looked really good, (laughs) come through. Um, But they said different things, and how do we know what to do? And he said to them, the Kalamas, first of all, wisely, he didn't tell them. He said, my friends, He said, it's natural that you would be confused with all these possibilities and these various teachings offered, um, and each one illuminating their own and kind of comparing it to others. And in such a circumstance, in your spiritual life, my friends, do not believe by what you hear or what follows convention that's been done before nor by some ancient text or literature, nor even by the elders um, or the community who have said it's always been done in this particular way, nor by ignoring those, but rather only when you see for yourself that these things, when undertaken, lead toward benefit, toward non-harming, toward blessing, toward the release of suffering, toward freedom of heart. These are the things you should do Try them, test them, and see. And those are what you should follow. 
and nothing else. And one of the most compelling principles in Buddhist teaching is that Buddhist teaching is not about believing something, but really about seeing for yourself. It is practices that are offered and trainings and inner understandings that are pointed to to say, see if this matches your own experience. And of course, it would be nice to have um, answers, somebody who knows. And I've seen it a lot in spiritual life. Um, Danny Goldman called it the halo effect, that you have this teacher who's, you know, talks a good game, right, and seems wise. Um, and then you go and ask them all these other things, assuming that because they know about meditation, they might know about something else. And I've seen, I mean, I remember being with this very famous and wonderful Lama and people coming up and asking about, you know, was he into natural childbirth? How should they give, how should they deliver their baby? He didn't know about babies. He'd never had one, you know. I mean, I was, I was there in, in the Whole Foods Market one day, and somebody came up to me and said, you know, what do you, oh, Jack, you know, right there you are, this great Buddhist teacher. Will you, um, um, I, I need you to tell me whether I should do joint custody or not. I don't know. I never met the other, you know, your ex-partner. How do I know? But we can easily place on some other authority in some way um, the responsibility or the wish or the hope that someone has the answers. They don't. <laughs> and it's really important. Thank you. Thank you. It's really important in this that we not fool ourselves. What matters in the Buddhist teaching, and you can examine this for yourself, more than anything, is to inspect your own motivation, the heartfelt motivation or intention. Um, when you're looking at you know, a question like custody, who should be the custodial parent, which is such a deep and difficult question, what is the heart's deepest intention? You know, is it to be right or get back or get even or whatever? Or is it compassion for everyone concerned? I mean, I remember talking to a very close friend at the end of their divorce, um, working out all this stuff, and he said to me, you know, we could kind of split the property, but my wife wants some more things, and we could go to court, and, you know, I'm sure that I would win, and all of this. Or, you know, she could end up with 60%, and I could take 40%, and we wouldn't fight. And I would take the suffering, and, uh, and my kids wouldn't have to bear it which is to say, if we went to court and went through that whole big battle, you know it would go down in the next generation. He said, I decided that I would just, you know, give that part up um, so that my children didn't have to take that suffering. Um, and that was more his inner intention than anything else. So the teachings don't give answers. What they ask is for a listening heart, a wise heart. This is uh, Lama Yeshe. He says, to become your own psychologist, you don't have to learn some big philosophy. All you have to do is examine your own heart and mind every day. You already examine the material things in your life. Every morning you check out the food in your refrigerator, but you never look into your own heart. Checking your heart and mind is a lot more important than what's in your refrigerator. So, 
kind of basic teaching here. <laughs> so to come to meditation or spiritual life is to listen face to face with this great mystery, the mystery of life which is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Mary Oliver, some questions you might ask. Is the soul solid like iron, or tender and breakable like the wings of a moth or the beak of an owl? And who has it and who doesn't? Does it have a shape like an iceberg or a hummingbird? Does it have one lung like the snake and the scallop? And why should I have it and not the anteater who loves her children? And come to think of it, what about the blue iris? What about roses and lemons and their shining leaves? What about the grass? What is it that makes the world sacred or holy? As Suzuki Roshi, Zen Master, says, the goal of spiritual practice is to keep our beginner's mind, to see the mystery of our life with an open heart and open, clear eyes. So one day, a person came up to the Buddha, as the story is told in the old days, and said, I hear you're a Buddha. And he said, yes. said, that's great, because I have some questions for you, you know. And said, yes. And said, what I want to know is, since you're a Buddha, is what happens when you die? You know, various people have asked this question before, been interested. And then the Buddha looked back and said, and why is it that you would like to know the answer to that question? And the man said, because when I hear no, then it will help me understand how I should live. So the Buddha looked back at him and said, Suppose that there are many lifetimes, as is taught commonly in India, that the wheel of karma from one life to another um, unfolds. How would you live your life? Suppose I answer that way. And the man said, well, I would want to be quite generous because it feels very good to be generous, and it also would plant the seeds for generosity and abundance and success in future lives. And I'd want to be mindful and attentive because I could appreciate what was here in this life, but also it would plant the seeds for wisdom in a future life. And I'd want to be really compassionate because it feels so right in the heart to do so. And also it would plant the seeds for others to treat me well and compassion and love in the future life. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now suppose that there's only one life. This is it. How then would you want to live? The man reflected for a minute. And he said, well, let's see, I'd want to be really generous because you can't take it with you, right? So I might as well have the joy of generosity in this very life. Um, like the story of the very wealthy man who died and people were talking about his estate and so forth. And somebody said, well, how much did he leave? And the other person said, why, everything, of course. I mean, how much do you leave, right? <laughs> so there you are. So I want to be generous for the joy of the generosity. And I would want to be mindful and attentive because if this is the only day like this that ever there will be, and this is the only life, I want to savor every moment. I want to see the rainbow and really look that it's a double rainbow, and it's amazing. And I certainly want to be compassionate because if this is the only time I will be here to pass other beings, how could I not want 
So he answered the same way, and the Buddha said, just so, my friend, and that was the end of their conversation. So it's not so much about belief as it is found in our direct experience, because how can we really know? You know, John Kenneth Galbraith um, said at one point, there are two classes of people who talk about what's going to happen in the future, those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. (laughs) Here we are, a fourth grade kid is studying whales. Um, um, baleen whales, sperm whales, you know how you study whales in elementary school, um, in a school in uh, Oklahoma, this is a particular story. And um, at one point the teacher says, you know, baleen whales, they, they filter uh, um, krill and, and uh, you know, small things in the ocean, and um, they really don't eat anything very big. Most whales don't. Um, they can't even swallow. Their throats aren't that big. They can't swallow really big things. And this little girl says, um, their throats are too small. And this little girl raises her hand. She says, but what about Jonah? <laughs> and the teacher says, no, um, a whale couldn't actually swallow a person. Their throat is too small. And she says, but it says that Jonah was swallowed. Um, Jonah was swallowed. And they go back and forth. And, and finally, the teacher says, Uh, but you can't know that for sure. And the little girl says, yes, I can. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. (laughs) And the teacher looks back and says, "Um, um, but what if he didn't go to heaven? And the little girl looks back and says, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So people want to know, they want to have their answers, you know, and we're we're pretty fixed on wanting to have the answer. Um, And it's easy to use spiritual life, whatever form it is, for a kind of false security and inoculation against the mystery of life. Um, And we either do it by, you know, imagining that we know the answer in some way or thinking I'm, you know, I belong to this whatever weird cult it is, like Spirit Rock or something like that, and it will help me in my next life or something. Life is ordinary. It is only because death is stalking you that life is an unfathomable mystery, says Carlos Castaneda. The fact is that we don't really understand. Um, And it can't be that we take somebody else's belief. Um, It's not by imitation that the heart becomes wise or free. You remember this story, at least those of you who come periodically. Um, A school principal um, had um, in her life a wish to do more service, and so when she got home from school several days a week afterward, she wasn't really that tired, um, and in the pleasure of service, she would make sandwiches to distribute to the homeless. And then she would go down on the streets and give them out to people. And she didn't care if she was thanked or if people refused her sandwiches because she wasn't doing it in order to somebody to like her. It just felt like the right thing to do, and she loved to do it. She was doing it because it was what in her life felt correct. And she did it for a while, and then after some time, the media found out about it, and she became a kind of minor celebrity in her area. And inspired by her work, other teachers and people around began to send her money for her ministry 
To their surprise, they all received their money back with a short note that read, make your own damn sandwiches. <laughs> so the point is not that you can become wise or loving, you know, or, or whatever you choose in spiritual life simply by, you know, taking on the outer costume or the language or that kind of exterior imitation. In fact, one of the factors of enlightenment in the Buddhist teachings um, is, a, a, is called Dhamma-vichaya in Pali or Sanskrit, and it means seeing for yourself, seeing what's clearly true, investigating, discovering. And it is this quality that empowers you, ennobles you, and liberates you. As Krishnamurti says, when the mind is still, quiet, listening, not seeking any solution or answer, just present, there is a regeneration that occurs, for then you can see what is true, and it is the truth that liberates, and not your efforts to be free. So it's not trying to be something else. It is seeing what is so that brings freedom to the heart, to listen deeply. And so in a way, our spiritual life is to begin to notice in the changing circumstances, is there freedom? Does the heart open? Are we able to be present for what is given to us? Or is there fear and identification and grasping? And what does this freedom feel like in the body, O nobly born, or you who have the potential in your Buddha nature to live with a wise and spacious heart? What is it like in the moments of letting go, of generosity, of opening, of wisdom? Can we begin to listen and trust most deeply our own experience? So there was a person who um, came to me for some assistance. They'd done a lot of... um, mindfulness meditation, and then they were starting to do the Tibetan practice of 100,000 prostrations, uh, the Nundra practice. And they'd gotten, into, gotten to up to about 5,000 of their bows and prostrations. It's a refuge practice where you bow to the Buddha and the lineage of teachers and so forth. And they just couldn't do it. They just, every time they tried to do it, they started to tremble and get afraid, and they couldn't make themselves do it. And they came to me, because I'd been one of their teachers, and said, I I don't know what's going on. And I talked to this Tibetan Lama that I got these teachings from um, as best I could by phone. I haven't seen him. And he said, I should just kind of try harder and try to do it. Um, But I can't. And of course, I just got curious. Because when somebody can't do something, it's generally not um, like, oh, you should. But something's going on. Isn't this interesting? I wonder what's cooking, right? So I said, well, okay, well, let's do them together. Let's see what happens. So we stood next to each other, and I started to bow, and this person started to bow, and he got about two bows into it, and his body started to shake, and he stood there, and he got really rigid. He said, I can't. And I said, okay, close your eyes, and first feel your body, and he said, it's all contracted and vibrating and all this stuff. And we did some exploration of what the experience was like of I can't, and where it was centered in his body, and then more deeply as we with it. I said, all right, as you enter the body, we did a kind of meditation to take him very deep into the memories in the body, really. I said, let a key image, a memory come that's connected with this. Very simple. And all of a sudden, tears started running down his cheeks. 
and he said, you know, when I was a little boy, um, I just loved my father, and my mother was, was quite demanding and difficult. And um, when I was, I don't know, about five or six years old, my father had a uh, heart attack, and he was taken off to the hospital, and he came back, um, and he was a very weak person after he came back. It was really, he wasn't very strong, and, you know, he laid around the house for a couple of years. He did, he's never really regained his strength, and then he died. Um, and that left me um, alone with my mother, with whom I have a very difficult, conflicted relationship. And I said, well, how does that relate to the not being able to bow? And he was there. I said, go back and be this little boy, you know, six years old, seven years old, eight years old when your father died. And he says, I'm feeling this. And he gets weeping. And he said, you know, um, my father was my refuge. My father was my protector. He was the one that took care of me. And when this happened to him, I said, I said, and he just stopped. And I said, what did you say? And he said, uh, I said, I'm never going to trust anybody again. And he's, again, he wept and he started to shake. And I said, so no wonder you can't take refuge in the Buddha or the Dharma or whatever your practice is, because you're not going to take refuge in anything again. Um, and I said, is that because it, there's nothing that's trustworthy? And he said, that's sure how it feels. And I said, well, how old do you feel? He said, seven, six, seven years old. I said, so for you at that time, that was so. How about now? Open your eyes. Let's just look at each other for a moment. Is there really nothing that's trustworthy? And, you know, that, of course, he had to grow up for a moment to make that kind of contact and realized, oh, that's not the whole story. There's a deeper truth. And, of course, there are things that, in which I know I can place my heart or my trust. Um, and so we began to bow again, and now he's fine. I mean, he's not fine, but he's like the rest of us anyway. <laughs> so the idea is not, oh, okay, I take this spiritual practice and then everything becomes fine. It's not about knowing, but it's somehow about listening in a deeper way with a beginner's mind or what one Zen master called don't know mind. I don't know. What is love? Um, the world is so full of divinity and strangeness. Scientists stops where all humans do, at the doors of birth and death. They know no more than you or I why a seed remembers the oak of 20 million years ago and why dust acquires the form of a woman and why we behold a rainbow in space and time. We haven't yet solved the secret of a single name upon the earth and we may pluck the nymph from the river, but we won't pluck the river from ourselves. For there are sacred places everywhere, and our world is still our holy grove where we wander hunting for the tree of life underneath which we already live. Don't know really means to stop putting the small ideas on life and see the mystery in front of us and question and listen with a, a spirit of wonder and understanding that comes not from some previous idea, but what, what we know, what the one who knows, what the wisdom of the heart knows. There's a, a value to not, this kind of not knowing. Um, Zen master Ikkyo says, I never get lost because I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> that kind of spirit. Uh, 
A man who had studied this beautiful calligraphy, a man who had studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died in the fullness of time and found himself standing inside the, at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you have proven to me your worthiness to enter into paradise. But the man answered, Just a minute now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasies of my disordered mind undergoing death? <laughs> and before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in. He's one of us. <laughs> My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to use the, the Thai word, um, my na, my means no, and na means certain. So he would say, it's uncertain, isn't it? A lot, all the time, people would ask him different kinds of questions about things. And he'd laugh, he had this wonderful kind of belly laugh, and he'd say, my na, you know, it's uncertain, isn't it? Talk about enlightenment, my na. Well, let's talk about this or that, or what should be or what shouldn't be. And he would smile and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? And there was this joy that he had, um, what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity, the wisdom of knowing that things are changing and that it's possible to find our composure in the midst of them all. So when people come to me and they're sitting in meditation on retreats and they come and they say, I'm sleepy all the time, Instead of saying, oh, you shouldn't be sleepy, I get curious, hmm, I wonder what's, what's going on. And maybe it's because your body's waking up and saying, remember me, you know, you've been running around for the last three months and now finally it's quiet and I need some rest. So it's just listening to your body. Or maybe, as happens sometimes, you sit and it's not that your body's tired, you start to get sleepy because you're there's something cooking inside that's difficult, you know, and it's very common. Someone will be sitting and all of a sudden a feeling of fear or grief or longing or something that's the unfinished business of the heart starts to come up. And they're sitting there and, oh, how funny, I start to get really sleepy as I'm sitting. So I so said, well, just close your eyes for a moment and pay attention and then let me ask you a simple question as you feel inside your body. If there was something cooking, if something's going on here, what might it be? <laughs> and you don't have to ask very many questions for the heart to answer. It comes back with an answer really quickly. Oh, you know, my sister died two years ago and I never really grieved. Or this happened or that. And very often, not always, but very often, the answer reveals itself and the work of the heart shows what needs to be done. Does this make sense to you? Whether it's sleepiness or depression, you know, or fears. Somebody comes and there's this whole, oh, I'm sitting and I'm so afraid. I say, well, tell me the story. Paint me the picture. How bad is it? Oh, my God, this is going to happen. That. And I said, there you are with a shopping cart on the street, right? Afraid you're going to be homeless and, you know, no one will know your name and all, whatever their particular worst fear is. I said, I'll come visit you. It's okay, right? <laughs> but anyway, and then, and then I look. We listen to hear the whole story and say, now, is, who, who tells this story? Really, who tells? Well, I do. You know, that's a kind of unreliable storyteller to start with. But is it true? I mean, one of the most beautiful things at certain moments when people are caught in something is to look a person in the eye very kindly and say, is it really true? And that's a kind of embarrassing question to be asked when you're in the middle of creating some story because the answer is always the same. 
my nah, actually. It's not really certain, is it? That's really, I mean, we think we know and we're not. So this quality in the Dharma, which is to say the teachings, the path of awakening, is one that leads us to see for ourselves what opens the heart, what brings us back to our nobility and Buddha nature, what brings a sense of graciousness, even in the midst of difficulty. And sometimes the teachings say, well, you're supposed to get rid of all these. You shouldn't have any more fear and you shouldn't have any more desire and those things. I haven't met many people that are even close to that description. And I'm not sure that it's not an archetypal description, that it's not really a description in the kind of absolute, like a platonic ideal, which is that's the ideal way. But in terms of our humanity, you know, here's the Dalai Lama who I admire and love and respect as much as anyone saying, sometimes I get angry, you know, and then I think, well, what's the use? And I let it go. Or sometimes I get frightened by something. Um, And what he expresses is this enormous compassion and wisdom and also this um, full humanity, the humanity of, uh, of one of us. You read the poetry of Zen Master Ryokan, the most beloved poet of Japan, you know, and sometimes it is this beautiful spring day where he writes, um, the children run to greet me for the first time this spring. How they have grown. I expected to see only pink blossoms, but the gentle spring snow has fallen and the cherry trees are wearing a white coat. Beneath the willow, singing and laughing, this fine spring day, truly full of joy, no one wants it to end. In my bowl, violets and dandelions are mixed together with the Buddhas of the three worlds. This great joyful spirit, some days. And then other days, he writes, Another year lingers to an end. Heaven sends a bitter frost. Fallen leaves cover the mountains. Crickets disturbed by my unexpected steps shriek. Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years, nothing but one long dream. Sparse rain in my desolate hermitage at night. Quietly, I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. So here he is, the joy of the children, the spring blossoms, the tears of loneliness, just saying this is the way our humanity is, without struggle, without um, judgment, with a free heart. You begin to notice, if you look deeply, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's phrase for this quality of inquiry, to really look deeply, that there are different kinds of questions. Um, One kind of question could be called the small doubt. I can't do this. It's too hard. I'll never figure it out. It's, you know, I'm too young to be practicing meditation or I should live my life and then do it. Or I'm too old. I should have started when I was younger. And, you know, those kind of, it's the wrong day and I don't have the right cushion anyway. (laughs) So for in the right shawl, there's some really cool shawls if you only had the right, or whatever the accoutrement would be for that, right? Um, 
Those are called the little doubts. Um, and all you have to do with those is bow and say, you know, thank you for your opinion. This is the doubting mind. And they come. It's the nature of the doubting mind. But then there is the great doubt. Who am I? What is the experience of freedom? A really radical question. In a consumer-driven society, um, we can see around us the roots of fear and confusion and greed and hatred and the suffering that they engender. But what about the roots of love? How deep are they in us? Can we trust them? Can we live from love and wisdom? We look around. If we want to understand the spiritual puzzle, we don't have to go to India or Tibet or Thailand or someplace. It's really here. And the questions are, are profound ones that we all have. Um, can we have peace without economic justice in this world? You know, can we have peace among ourselves as human beings in the face of the scourge of racism that is still woven into our culture and in cultures worldwide? Um, can we find peace and, and harmony and community when all the major nations of the world are enormous exporters of arms and we you know, make our living in some, some ways by exporting billions and billions of dollars of arms and then we think we're not, you know, we're not safe? and other industrialized nations do the same thing. What would it be like to listen to the heart and say, how might I live and how might we live in the wisest and freest possible way? And sometimes that's a lonely question to ask because certain people around or whole you know, groups of sheep um, are not necessarily going in the same direction. There's a voice inside the body. This is a poet, Michael Blumenthal. There's a voice and a music, a throbbing, four-chambered pair that wants to be heard, that sits alone by the river with its mandolin and its torn coat and sings for whomever will listen a song that no one wants to hear. But sometimes, lost, on his way to somewhere significant, a man in a coat carrying a briefcase wanders into the forest. He hears the voice and the mandolin. He sees the thrush and the dandelion and feels the mist rise over the river. And his life is never the same for this having been lost, for having strayed from the path of his routine for no good reason. So it's a challenging poem in a way, isn't it? And at the same time, a kind of instruction Get lost, wander, let go, do something unusual, um, and listen. And the same when we sit and meditate. To sit and meditate, it's like taking the time to pray, to meditate, isn't so much to make something happen, but to listen, what is here in this body and mind? and What does the heart have to say? And we can take courage or faith <clears throat> from all great human cultures that going off into the mountains or out into the desert or off on a vision quest or walking by the <clears throat> side of the vast ocean um, or simply sitting quietly <clears throat> under the plum tree 
or the cherry tree, that there is this human longing to, to listen, to attend, to attend with the heart as much as the mind, to take this journey of reawakening, of remembering our true nature. And I was very skeptical when, I mean, I was quite interested in spiritual things from quite, from young, from reading Siddhartha in high school and studying Buddhism in the university and so forth. But when I was in the first, first in the monastery, um, in the forest monastery, it was my father was a scientist and I had studied science quite a lot. And my teacher talked about past and future lives and all the whole Buddhist cosmology. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I said I didn't believe in any of that stuff. He said, that's fine, that's great. You can see birth and death moment to moment, day by day, every day you're born anew, and what do you do with that birth? And you can see how one birth conditions the next, one moment conditions. You don't have to believe the rest of this stuff. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. You'll see. So I used to not believe in anything. Now I pretty much believe in everything. You know, I've seen a lot of things, you know. And in the course of retreats and meditation and very, you know, kind of long periods of inner training, I've had wonderful experiences and visions and lights and rapture and dissolution into emptiness and coming back, you know, into this body. You know, this is strange. Here we are incarnated again and all these things. Um, and filling the cells of my body with loving kindness, that's really fun, you know, and light and all these things. But then, of course, the question is, all right, you come back home, you know, to your spouse or your lover, your kids, your garden, your dogs and cats and stuff, and are you any different? I remember going to see my teacher, Ajahn Chah, after I'd been in a long training period in a Burmese monastery, telling about all these wonderful things. And he looked at me and he said, that's nice. You know, that was all he said. <laughs> and I'm like waiting for a little more, you know, something, some kind of appreciation. And then he smiled and he said, well, something else to let go of, isn't it? <laughs> so it took the wind out of my sails right away, you know. Because it's not those experiences, um, although they gave me a profound faith and a real sense of how consciousness itself is the creator of experience. But even with the wisdom and even with the love that grew in those retreats, if it's not here and now, it doesn't matter. Then it's just a memory. And it's the same for you. Yes, we need places to train us to face our pain and fear and to face death itself and to allow joy to grow in us in ways we may never have, whether it's retreats or vision quests or daily meditation. But that's really like the training wheels. That's the place to practice so that then when we meet the next person or when we're driving on the crowded highways of California or wherever it is after the ecstasy, you know what comes, right? <laughs> and sometimes people say, you know, all this spiritual stuff doesn't really matter. What matters is just a loving and wise heart, just that you're kind without a big fuss about it. Like the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. But is that it? Is that all there is to spiritual journey? I mean, I'm just asking you, I don't know. <laughs> is there more to it than kindness? There is another inquiry, also very deep. Who am I? Who is it that's kind or not? Do I exist separate from others? Who dies at death? What is this? How do I keep this heart 
connected and open. I mean, I feel it opens and closes, doesn't it? Like a sunflower or like a California poppy. Um, it does. And what is it that opens the heart? What closes the heart? And what is it that's really um, a refuge for our trust? You know, what can we really learn? Where do we find freedom? What would it take for you to answer these questions? So it's not someone else's answer, but what would it take for each of us to answer, I know what freedom is in here. I know when they speak of enlightenment or liberation or freedom of the heart, I have tasted this, I know what this is like. When I hear about the great heart of compassion in all these different traditions, I know what that means. What would it take for you to know for yourself? For some, it might be regular loving-kindness meditation every day. You could do a year of metta, loving-kindness practice, for yourself. It would be a fantastic practice for most of you. And it would change your relationship to everyone else. For some, it might be to simplify your life, or spend time in solitude, or go on retreat. For some, it might be service and giving to others in a you know, way that really touches your own heart. For some, it might be a deep reflection. Well, who am I really? Just spending time with this as a koan, as a profound inner question. There was one person on a retreat recently, and we were talking in interviews as this person's fellow was going on and meditating, and he had a tremendous amount of self-judgment and unworthiness and I asked him at one point if you could give a word that described your sense of yourself, and he said, a failure. You know, so that's already your heart goes, oh, you know, a certain sense of compassion for that. And as we were in the dialogue and discussing it, I said, well, here you are saying this, um, but who's the one that's aware that you said it? You know, you say, I'm a failure or I'm a success. Those are, those are just two different, you know, parts of the same sentence in a certain way. And um, despair, as someone said, is a greater deceiver than hope, right? They both can deceive you because they're just ideas. So who is it that's creating these ideas? Who is it that tells this story? I'm not even asking if it's true yet. And who's hearing these words, even as I tell the story to you? You know, there you are, you're identified with this body, maybe. Is that who you are? This meat body, as someone says? I mean, we have it, it's precious and wonderful and amazing to be alive. But is that all of who we are? You know? And if some accident happens to a person and they lose a part of their body, are they still not that person? Or as one of my colleagues was teaching and said, all right, if I take a bite of an apple and swallow it, is that now me? Right? How about if I chew it a little bit and then spit it out? Where does it stop being me? Who am I in this? What is our nature? And so in this conversation, we were pointing to the teachings of awareness itself, that there are sense experiences of body and seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching, all the kind of experiences that we have, thoughts that come, and there is the knowing of them. And they're not the same. They're not identical. One of the things that you notice, I talk about this, is you can sit 
or, or you can stand in front of your mirror and look in the mirror and notice that you've gotten older. And it's peculiar, right? You know. Um, but the part that's interesting is that you don't necessarily feel older because your body grows older and the body exists in time but the mind doesn't exist in time time is just an idea past and future where are they they're just in your thought right now actually there is only the eternal present and in consciousness there isn't time you don't grow old in consciousness so you start to look and say well who am i <clears throat> and this fellow on retreat began to do that you know it was one thing okay i'm a failure over and over this is kind of like the top 10 tunes one hears it on the radio for a long time and then you know okay we've played this tune for a long time and he said i'm really going to find out he decided so so his somehow he got kind of fired up about inquiry who am i and he decided, I'm going to sit up all night and just pay attention to this question. So he sat and he walked all night long, in that kind of tradition like the Buddha sitting all night under the Bodhi tree. Um, and his body hurt, there was a lot of pain. And then he kept saying, well, to whom is this pain happening? The body, I feel this pain, but who, who is it that's, that's feeling this pain? Who am I? aware of this pain, you know, and, and then um, some sound outside, and who is it that's listening? He was really inquiring, and then he'd get up and walk, or he'd lie down, and he'd sit back up. No one was in there all night long, and then at one point, he began to realize that awareness itself was unaffected by whatever happened. He could lie down, and awareness was just aware that he was lying down. He could get up, and awareness was just aware of him sitting up. So he stood up, and he danced around a little bit, and awareness was just aware of him dancing around. Then he started shouting and making funny noises, <laughs> and waving his hands and being really stupid. And he said, in awareness, just notice that. you know. And then he stopped, and then he went outside, and, you know, threw a big stone out into the darkness and it clattered around and, and awareness just noticed that and then he laughed and awareness noticed that and he went and he said it was fantastic I realized that there was just this awareness and whatever I did awareness was there like the mirror or the sky that noticed what came and went and was at peace in the midst of it all he was so happy that next morning <laughs> he said wow you know, because his identity had begin to, begun to shift from I'm a failure, which is a kind of, you know, the small sense of self, the body of fear that we live inside at times, began to untangle from his own direct seeing, from his own investigation. I would say in my own practice life that I still have as many questions, perhaps, as I have answers. You know, they're both uh, um, true in a way. Um, it's so mysterious and, and wondrous just to man, speech, um, eating, um, walking. It's so weird how we ambulate on the earth, you know. As humans, we fall one direction and we stick out our leg and catch ourselves, And then we fall the other way and stick out our foot and catch it. It's a very strange... If you went to another planet and then came back here and watched, it would be a really... Oh, look at how they get around, these creatures. I mean, it's all so strange. It is. And I, you know, and I always say this, how odd it is that we put dead plants and animals into this hole in the end of our body and mush them up with fluids and put them down the tube and then out the other end and stuff. It's, 
it's bizarre to have this body, um, and and amazing and wonderful, you know. And then we procreate and we make more of ourselves in this in process. So, but what I do know is that we are interconnected. That that apple is not separate from who I am, and that the air that I breathe and the trees of the rainforest and the and the moisture from the Pacific Ocean that was, I mean, all the water, all the fresh water in the world has been through a million different bodies over all these four billion years of Earth's incarnation. And the water in your body will go back in the streams and it will cycle through somebody else's body. I mean, every time you pee, you're just kind of giving water to somebody else's body. That's how it's going. I mean, we're just cycling stuff. We're a pattern is what we are in form. And I also know that because it's all changing, anybody have something that doesn't change, you know, in their experience, the sense experience and so forth, that holding on doesn't really work in the end. You get rope burn, as they say, with holding on. (laughs) That uh, there's a much freer way to live, which is being gracious with the Tao as things come and go. I know that there's freedom of heart. You could call it enlightenment, you could call it by whatever name you wish, but that it is our birthright and it is here for you and for every human being to discover this possibility of freedom in the midst of this changing world. And you know it, you've had your moments of freedom. And one of the glorious things about teaching retreats here, and I certainly invite you to come on retreat, although it's not the only way you can do it, you know, taking care of your baby or in your marriage or in partnership or whatever. Um, But retreat is a beautiful way to see people sit and face their fears and bodily pain and longing and love and joy and all the things that come and get freer and freer and freer. And enlightenment happens all the time. It really does, and it's such a beautiful thing. I also know that there isn't one right description. The Buddhists have it right, you know, and the Hindus or the Muslims or something don't. Um, There's the mystery and there's a free heart. And one of the beautiful things is when you get mystics together from all these different traditions. If you get the scholars or the people, you know, who read and believe and so forth together, then there's a lot of wrangling. But if you get, you know, the Dalai Lama and Thomas Merton and, you know, whoever you happen to pick as the, the mystics from the different traditions, they just look at each other and laugh and smile and say, of course, isn't it mysterious? Isn't it wondrous that we can be free? And now the important thing in this freedom, of course, we don't want to fool ourselves, is that to be free doesn't mean that still problems won't happen. I mean, maybe there's somebody that doesn't have problems, but I haven't (laughs) met one recently. Um, You know, and I still see it in my own life, getting lost in problems and so forth. But there's this whole shift from believing the small sense of self, the fears, the sense of problems, to resting in freedom and saying, yes, problems come and sometimes I get caught, but that's, that's not really who I am. And there's this possibility of graciousness and freedom that is there in your own heart as much as in anyone else's. It is for all of us to discover. Um, And it's really the purpose of spiritual life. Howard Zinn, wonderful teacher and author of The People's History of the 
um, the, the U.S. and many, many other things. I was talking in this one in this article on the optimism of uncertainty about not knowing, looking at world history about the the unbelievably unexpected things that happened in the last half century since the end of the Second World War. Um, what happened in China and what happened in Russia and what happened in Africa and the end of colonialism and you know what's happened in, in more recent years in, in Brazil with the grassroots movements of workers and the poor electing this new president and in South Africa and in Nicaragua and Poland uh, workers in Poland and things that you never would have expected. I've tried hard to match my friends in their pessimism about the world, and yet in spite of all the terrible things happening everywhere, I keep encountering people who give me hope. And he goes on, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently This gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. So spiritual life is really an invitation and a challenge and a kind of a blessing for what I would most want for you is to be a finder, to, oh, nobly born, to be empowered. And um, I guess one little last story. A good friend of mine um, named Father Theophane, who was a monk at uh, Spencer Abbey, one of the three largest Trappist abbeys in America, that's near our center in Massachusetts, near Barrie. He came one year early on to our center to a three-month retreat, one of our three-month retreats in the early, in kind of mid-1970s. Um, his, his abbot let him come, and he's this, he was like about 6'5", gaunt, with bulging eyes and a, and a gray beard, wearing this black and white um, Trappist robe, and he looked like he just walked out of the Egypt, you know, Egyptian desert fathers <laughs> being in the desert for 40 years, this really wild-looking guy with a wonderful smile. And he sat through a retreat, and he learned a lot, and he went back, and he was kind of trying to put together Buddhist and Christian mystical practices and things like that. And then about, and he had a lot of questions. How does all this work? And then about, Mm, 10 or 12 years later, um, he came back over. He'd come and visited a number of times, but he came to give some teachings at the end of a long retreat for a group of people that were interested to speak to him, especially to people who had grown up Catholic. And some of them were kind of, I don't know what's called, lapsed Catholics. Is that the right word or whatever? You know, and he talked about the church in such endearing terms. He said, it's sort of like you're 
old mother and the house is kind of falling down and everything's moth-eaten, but it's still your mother, you know. Anyway, he was very charming about it. Um, um, and the teachings he gave about spiritual life were um, clear, simple, wise, beautiful. And what I saw as he spoke and what I heard was that he had changed from being a seeker, which he'd been maybe a dozen years before with all his questions, to being a finder, to being someone who just had a good heart and trusted his own experience and knew that freedom was possible no matter what the circumstance, even if he still got caught, um, and communicated the joy of that freedom and that possibility to others. And that's what I would want most for each of you, is this inner knowing yourself of the possibility of freedom, of empowerment, of graduating. Because it's actually pretty boring to have a university where nobody graduates, you know. And if you have a spiritual scene where only the guru, guru jack, you know, is there, and everybody worships the guru, but nobody else gets to be free, it's actually not a very interesting game. Um, it isn't. Because the point of the Buddha's teaching and the teachings of all those who offer the blessings of spiritual life from one person to another, it's kind of communicable, is to remember, to reawaken in you your own Buddha nature, your own freedom, your own compassion, and to get you to look and say, what is it? How can I live? Because you can do it. How can I live in such a way that fosters and supports and really ennobles this life that I've been given? So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.